Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. It's a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie films to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm the director of the Dare feature film. I'm the producer of A Serial Killer's Guide to Life. And I'm about to go and shoot my King Arthur project movie over in Wales in about two and a half weeks' time. It is now officially titled Arthur and Merlin, colon, The Knights of Camelot. Um, I'm just going to call it Arthur and Merlin for now. Colons always bother me. Um, just generally, there's a rule. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're crewing up, prepping, uh, casting, all that kind of good stuff has been done pretty much. And we are good to go. Going out on recce's very soon, all fun and games with that. What I'm going to do while I'm away for the next, uh, well, I think I'll do next week, week after... Uh, the boys are going to take over and I'm going to do live stuff from on set. I say live. It'll be obviously recorded, but I'll be live because I'll be doing it live from on set for you that the boys will sneak into the episode. Robbie and Phil and Christian James will all be doing it for you. Uh, shout out to Robin McCain for editing this as well. Uh, this is a fantastic episode I recorded with the wonderful David Raymond who goes into depth about the process of making his feature film, No Miss also known as Night Hunter, also known as... I'm going to leave that there because you'll find out in the episode. We also talk about what can go wrong on a set, how you can get through that, all those issues that happen when you actually do get to set. Um, he's incredibly honest and incredibly candid. It is a delight. You're going to learn loads. Sit back, relax, and take it all in your stride. For those of you who came down to the Make Your Film event last week, thank you. It was a, a roaring success. Our panellists were amazing, gave so much insight. We're taking a little hiatus with Make Your Films while I'm doing Arthur and Merlin, colon, and Dom is off to LA for a little bit. So we might be back with them November, December. Keep an eye out. And if you haven't been yet, come on down. And if you have, thank you. We had a great time. So shout outs before we get to this week's episode. It feels really lovely for us uh, making these things and, and for Robbie making the effort give him a little follow at Robbie McCain on Twitter say thank you why not me as well at Jos Alderson or at the Filmmakers Pod and say you really enjoyed it honestly it, it does make us feel good uh, shout out to those people Sarah Thomas Martin Neely thank you for helping out the Make Your Film event pal really appreciate that brilliant actor by the way cast him uh, Will Kenning uh, for your brilliant questions and for helping out uh, generally on the Twitter lifestyle James Huge Estee Charles who's been brilliant recently thank you Sam Evans yeah thanks Sam uh, Dr Schlock Peter Westerhoff and Lelia Yvetta I said I'd give you a shout out didn't I so there we go get to this week's episode it is with the fantastic david raymond whatever you're doing walking in the park you're in the bath concentrate listen maybe get a notepad and pen and enjoy this week's filmmakers podcast so i am delighted to be joined on the filmmakers podcast by director david raymond who's also a screenwriter welcome to the podcast david thank you for having me absolute pleasure thank you for joining us man where are you now you're in la i'm in uh, very sunny la but very nice to hear another 
British and I can guess London accents, that's always... Um, well, I, it's funny you say London. <laughs> I think I've been here too long. I'm actually um, Yorkshire-born and bred. Oh, wow, you're a Yorkshire lad. No, I'm oh, a Yorkshire lad. Yeah. And, I've yeah, missed, I, I, I missed all that in your accent. I went to I, Americans hear my accent and think I'm Australian. But I think that's just a general LA thing. I think it's an LA thing. I get that a lot. And you go, really, though? Really? Yeah, yeah. Could, could you? No, no. I, fair enough. I don't know most states in America. I don't know. You know, it's very hard to pick out Middle America differences for me. So I understand. Right. It. Let's talk about your your journey here, because from what I can tell, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you went from a short film to making a feature film with some huge stars in it. Um, tell, correct me if I'm wrong. But that no, is you're right. You're right. There was there was there was one step before that, which was I, I wrote heroes and villains. I, right? I, yeah. yeah. The great thing about a script is it's not it's not that someone's assessing for the most part who you are or what you've done. It's literally just words on a page, and so therefore it can come from anyone. You can take a script with, I mean, this is an extreme example, but you can scribble out Christopher Nolan's name on a script, put your own. And if that script gets read, you now have a career in the industry. And the, the only breaking point is making sure that whatever you're writing is decent enough that people pay attention to it. And so mm-hmm. I wrote Heroes and Villains, mm-hmm. which was a British romantic comedy, sort of in that Richard Curtis era of, you know, British movies that, that were around at the time. And but I wrote it in Microsoft Word because I didn't know what final draft was. So I, and you can imagine it's expensive. So yeah. Oh my god, it's it's ridiculous. Anyway, but anyway. you can imagine hitting spacebar trying to align a script in Word. <laughs> Anyone you out know, there as a screenwriters are now laughing their heads off. For those who haven't written a script and want to. You sell Don't do text. it in Word. Yeah, and I think it's free. I think it's still free, sell text. And it's the same as Final Draft. It's just not expensive. And it, when you right. send it out as a PDF, it actually looks like a script. Doing it on Word, if I ever got one on Word, i just laugh and go, okay, not real, not a screenwriter. How the hell did you get your Word, your script done on Word or whatever? Well, here's the thing. Out I didn't, because, you know, back then it wasn't that I was emailing my script to people. What I was doing was... I was typing it up in Word, printing yeah. it when everyone left the office. Because printing scripts is fucking expensive when you're sending yeah. 50 of them out and then the postage. Mm-hmm. And so I'd wait for everyone to leave the office, print them all out. And then, you know, back then, Microsoft Word, when you'd print it, it would never really align when you then printed no, it. So you'd have to go back it? through it. And mm. anyway, so I, I. Heroes and Villains was a script I wrote, sent to every British production company there was. Yeah. And if I'm really honest, the a, a couple of people tried to buy it for, you know, three grand, five grand. And when wow. I said, well, keep your money, can I have a job? They said no. So what <laughs> I did was I, I then came up with a bit of BS, which was... Um, in order to kind of get in a room with certain people on the script, I told people that it was in turnaround from uh, working title and I changed my name on the script and then suddenly everyone was reading it saying it was brilliant. <laughs> wow. That is so... Um, I mean, that's actually quite ingenious, to be fair. That is... Well, back then, it, really it, I thought I was being quite... I didn't. I had to obviously look up what the word turnaround meant, but I... When you sort of drop in that, you know, well, working title had optioned this script and now I've 
I've optioned the material from them. You, you know, when you're 23, 24 years old, you just sort of think, well, fuck it, people will believe that. And one day I'll, I might have to prove it. But by then, everyone will be so pregnant with the project, I'll be able to come clean, which is exactly what happened. So yes. you're doing Heroes and Villains is Happening. You're starring in the film. You've managed to get it made, which is incredible. Uh, and Thank you. It was too... 2006 it came out it is great you had Crichton Bone was your DOP who's huge you know you had a great casting director you've got a great yeah, cast yeah, yeah. as well Jenny Agutter James Corden's in there I genuinely believe the language of film is a lot of that is instinctual and how you're telling a story and why why you're using certain shots to then tell that story it was on Heroes and Villains I realised I don't want people judging me for a script that looks entirely different to um to what's on screen mm-hmm. you know so it was it was it was hard and actually i'll give you an example there was a scene in heroes and villains that was my favorite scene that i'd written where james corden's character who's playing a uh it was sort of a british frat house and he was playing a guy who was uh secretly trying to um lose weight and get fit because he's fed up of being taunted for the shape of his uh, body by his friends, which candidly, you know, uh, was my childhood. I was, I was, uh, I was a big boy. Um. So I'd written this scene where his character is falling in love with um, a girl who's just moved into the house, and she she starts to sort of suspect that he's up to stuff because, um, you know, in the script I had. James going for runs at you know four in the morning in the dark with a hoodie over his head so no one sees him and then he would get back into bed before any of the boys wake up you know do his laundry without them realizing it you know he was hiding muesli in the cupboard so that was his story then I'd written this scene where she is looking through a photo album in his bedroom with him of you know the guys on their holidays over the years and the way I'd sort of envisioned it was um, you get tighter and tighter and tighter on the image of the guys, which is the same image over the years. And in none of the beach shots is he ever not in full clothing. So I'd written this sort of bit where she sort of... She, she realises that these taunts hurt him and they have this awkward moment between the two of them with no dialogue. And then from outside the door, you hear, come on, Chunk, we're going to be late for the cinema, just to sort of n- nail it on the head. which sort of hearing that out loud is is bad writing but that was the scene there was no need for any dialogue it's just this intimate moment between two people where you kind of realize like oh she she knows what he's really about um and when i got there on set the the director had basically had james doing the scene you know without his clothes on there wasn't the photo album anymore and there was all this dialogue and I that's where I just sort of thought well the the you know there's a certain way I I would rather have done something um where the intent of a scene was very specific um and I think there are days like that where you think okay I my my uh my choice of being an actor is is a poor one and I and I really want to direct what I write Mm. Um, I think I remember doing that too there was a time when I was I'd written plays at the Royal Court and the Soho Young Writers and we were putting them on and I got other directors to direct them because I thought, no, no, I don't want to direct them, I want to see it. And I was always really frustrated. Nothing wrong with them directing, but 
I got frustrated with, I was like, I, I want to do it like this. And I couldn't stand up and I got very frustrated. So right, from then right. on, I was like, no, I want to direct. Why aren't I doing this myself? And sometimes you need those little pushes to go, hang on, that's what I want to do. That's maybe Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is what I you did so. here. And so from, from there, and this film got a little release and it did well and, well, it got a release. Um, and then from there... We were, out, we were genuinely out in British cinemas, which is ridiculous, but... Um, <laughs> which is great. I mean, what a start, you know? It's pretty impressive, yeah, really. Yeah, it was... I think the story behind the why of it was impressive. The, the film itself is not. And for anyone who's considering watching it, please don't. It's, it's <laughs> just... It's just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I love the honesty. It's so good. So then you, you said, right, I want to direct. And, uh, you know, yeah. maybe a few years later, you made the short The Other Man. Um, in between that, had you made other things as well? Were you making music videos? No. Or? And so, um, I'd always, so the, I'd always wanted to direct as much as possible. But I, I write a lot. And so The Other Man actually came out of necessity because I went in to pitch to Hasbro to write Action Man, which is one of their characters. Mm, yeah. And I came up with this pitch and they, at the time, really liked it. And I'd sort of developed it for about three or four months. Um, and then they sort of, their either their head of the studio changed or basically they changed their mind what they wanted. And I'd come up with this really cool sort of spy take and you know, their decision was, well, we actually want Action Man to be Jesse Eisenberg who can jump off buildings and beat people up, but he can't talk to girls. And I remember thinking, well, that is completely the opposite to what I've just come up with. And um, I'm not sure that that is something I can write with a straight face anyway. Um, and so in the end, I I thought, well, I've put all this work into... Um, into sort of building a world and, I, and I'm developing it now with someone who's just awesome but I can't say who it is because nice. uh, okay. they don't want to announce it yet but it's very I think it went hopefully God willing when it gets announced and it becomes real um, that you'll see why the fit is just perfect but so I'd come up with this um, I'd written this script called Absence of War which is mm -hmm. basically what happens if James Bond left MI6 and went to the private sector. That's kind of the, the big setup, as, as it were, which, which, you know, from an espionage point of view, the last sort of 10, 15 years has exploded in the private sector where, you know, the Bournes and Bonds, a lot of them have gone into it. Now, it doesn't make them bad guys, but... So that's the sort of the, the canvas of the movie. And I'd, I'd originally set it up with a production company in LA called Emmett Furler, um who make a lot of sort of genre action thrillers. Um, and we'd almost got it made, um, but the the scope of the film was we were struggling because, it, you know, it's not a small movie. And their, mm. their main business model is, you know, there's a Lionsgate grindstone label. So that most of the films that they make are in that kind of five to $15 million range where, you know, it, there's a limited theatrical, um, but they get big stars, but they get big stars for a, a very limited amount of time in their shoots. And it just, it wasn't going to work because of the nature of the script. 
And so then it went to uh, relativity. This was before they went under. And okay. the budget sort of went back up to around sort of 30 to mid 30s, which obviously hypothetically sounds great. Obviously, the film didn't get made. But so for about a year, I was sort of talking to them about it and talking about cast. And they that's when they sort of said, well, look, for you to direct this, you know, can you go and direct a short so that we can use it to show people that you can actually direct talent? So mm -hmm. I came up with the other man, um, uh, wrote it and shot it in a, in a matter of weeks. And there's a phenomenal actor called Bern Gorman, who I'm really good friends oh, with, who I yeah. cast in it. Yeah. Um, and actually, just remind me to come on to Bern and Nomis. But so Bern was in it... Um, and he's just amazing. So, I, you know, uh, it got into a few festivals. It's not an amazing short, but more than anything, the, the performances in it were great. And I, and I, and I, I guess from a directing point of view, I kind of realised that... I, I, I'm trying to say this without sounding e egotistical, but I realised I I, I, that my calling as a director was right when mm. I directed the short because I felt very at home doing it. I wasn't nervous. I, I'm... I love working with my actors. Um, See, that's really so, interesting. I think that's, it's true. It's like, if, if there's any directors out there who haven't directed anything yet and they're going, oh, I can't get my feature made, or whatever, go make a short. Um, and it surprises me so many people who haven't because then you'll know if you want to do this or not because you realise yeah, it's not easy and you've really got to think and this is just a short. So, uh, God forbid you go on the set of a feature film and not made anything beforehand. It's just insane. Well, how do you yeah, do that? Yeah, 100%, 100%. So, yeah, it's great that you learnt, you learnt on this one, uh, The Other Man, and you had a great time. And then you said, right, from there you straight away went, I want to make a feature. And obviously you were trying to do Absence of War during that time. Were you attached as director on that? Yeah, I was. Um, mm. But around then, you know... Then for about a year, things got very stale relativity because they were constantly telling us, yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to make cast offers. And then it never happened. And then obviously the studio imploded. So there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes that sort of play into, you know, oh, my movie's getting made. But the reality is, no, it's not. And there's no actors attached because none of the offers went out. Um, but over the time, I, I was writing other stuff and you know, the general response from people I was pitching Absence of War to being the sales companies at the time, you know, everyone said, look, this is good, but can you can you not write something a bit more contained um, that, that isn't, you know, a debut 30, $35 million spy yeah. franchise? So um, sense. around then, I'd, I'd, and I was writing some TV as well at the time, um, and a couple of things had been set up. I, I, I wrote something called The Cleaners, which is about money laundering that I set up with Graham King mm -hmm. uh, and his TV division. So m stuff was being set up. So it was helping me from a, I guess, from a reputational point of view. But just it, none of things was getting made, um, which obviously then means you're not really earning any money either. So I wrote a film called Sins, which is a very sort of spiritual, complicated script. Um which again, I, I, I kind of had a similar response, which was everyone was reading it and, and responding to the material. But there's a, there's a lead role in that, which from an emotional point of view is a very, very challenging piece. And, you know, in order to go and bag a big A-list actor or actress for that piece, I think the general feedback was, look, this is, 
this is too much of a gamble for a big lead actor. Mm. Um, and a bunch of the sales companies who, who'd made me offers on Sins said, well, can you not just write a bit more of a generic genre thriller? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that, I was like, all right, fuck it. I'll, I'll, sure. And that's, that's actually where No Miss came from, which was, you know, so I, I wish I could, I, I could bullshit and say, oh, my God, I, when, I, when I was a kid, I've always wanted to direct this movie. That's not actually the truth. I... I wrote and came up with Nomis out of necessity because I, I was being asked by the market to come up with a genre thriller that wasn't um, emotionally complicated, easier to cast and was makeable. And actually, I'd written the Simon character for Bern Gorman, um, but he was shooting, I think he was on Pacific Rim when mm. uh, when we made No Miss. Um, so he he wasn't around and, and that's obviously how we ended up finding Brendan Fletcher. But, uh, you know, No Miss, the birth of it was purely out of necessity because I was, you know, constantly on the cusp of getting my first one made um, whilst setting other things up, but just, you know... Um, the sales agents, as it were, that tend to dominate the independent finance space, or used to anyway, um, uh, they were all asking for the same thing. So I was like, all right. I'll, so I went away and wrote the script. Um, and how do you find writing scripts? And what's your process? Do you, do you have notes? Do you, do you just sit and write? What's your, how, I, how do you do it? I map it out. So actually, I'm currently sat in my office, and one of my walls is a almost like a, uh, a whiteboard. So I, what I tend to do with when I write is I'll map it out, sit on it and sit on it and sit on it in my head and kind of add little details to this map on the wall. And then eventually, once I start writing, I, I, I write very, very, very quickly. Once I start, I, I don't really, I mean, I stop, but you know well, I, yeah, can, I can sleep and breathe yeah <laughs> yeah but I, I tend to go into some sort of weird zone where I can you know I'm pretty sure I I, I can write a feature in probably a month um, wow maybe six weeks but I can't do that from scratch you know before that there's at least a couple of months uh, at the very least of mapping it out and it sounds silly but almost cooking it in your head Mm-hmm. Where, that doesn't sound silly, yeah. Yeah, where I know exactly where the story's going and I know my big story beats and my reveals and the things that come back around. And then, you know, clearly it always... For, for me, writing is always about, well, what's the end of the story and then working back into it. Um, yeah. And how are you finding t- time to do that? Like you say, I'll just take a month, six, you know, maybe six weeks to write it before it's been, after it's been percolating in my head in terms of... You know, so are you being paid to do this? Is it how's it work in terms of no, a lot of writers it, out there? It, going, a lot of it is it? on a lot of it is on spec, um, mm-hmm. but I, I, you know, you just find ways of getting by. Um, you know, and, and I have a little production company. Unfortunately, we had someone that was willing to cover some bills for a while to allow me the time to do that. Once I'm ready and it's cooked in my head, I, I then motor through it. And the reason why I motor through it is because I, for the most part, I know exactly where I'm going. The fun bit is then obviously when your characters then come alive on the page. And so so my sort of process is, as I've sort of learned over the years, this is the best way I work, is I'll write the first draft, 
really as quickly as I can. I won't go back and re-edit my work because I find that to be a sandpit. So I'll end up writing the first draft, which will normally come in, you know, where I expect it to. You know, if it's 115 pages, 120 pages, that's fine, because I know my, my stage two is you effectively start on page one and you're editing your own work. Um, and inevitably, you know, you, you end up dropping, you know, five, ten pages as you're editing your own stuff because you realise some of the stuff that you thought was genius is nonsense. Um, and then and then really once you've got to my processes, once I've then gone through it and then I'm looking at a page count, if I'm slightly heavy, I always think a, a quick read is very useful compared to, you know, especially when you're out and agents are reading it and, and, and whatnot. I'll then go through a third time and dump words that I don't need on the page to just get my page count down to something much more manageable where it's a, a faster read. Um, so those that's really my process. It's almost like there's three drafts of the same script. My, my, my puzzle always re- tends to remain pretty constant on what I write. It's really what happens in the scenes that tends to change. But normally the way I lay it out tends to be roughly where it ends up landing. That's really interesting. Your your character's already quite shaped and formed by that point, so you're just tweaking dialogue, you're tweaking um, emotions as you go through. Yeah, and I think it's it's Journeys. it's yeah. I think the the as you as you end up with your sort of your not even your finished product, but with a script where you know the roadmap is there, you end up effectively then going and doing a, a character pass touch up. So. It sounds silly, but you'll. I, I go back to page one and I live through it through each of these characters just to make sure I'm bringing them alive on the page as much as possible, or just coming up with little things that that speaks a lot to their character without having to write a load of exposition or dialogue. Um, mm. But that sort of I just touch up individual roles. Um, it's normally one of the last things I end up doing. Um, I think everyone has different journeys of how they mm. write scripts. Some people just vomit it all out and then go, oh, I don't know what it is. Other people re-edit every day and go, no, I'll keep going and making that better and better and better and better. And then it takes a lot longer and you might get to page 70 and go, oh, I shouldn't have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, the other way you put a vomit draft out and then you go, oh, no, how am I going to re-edit this? <laughs> so there's, there's many different paths to, to writing a screenplay. I think it's all about story, though. As long as the story's right, you can eventually find your way. Yeah. Yeah. And you can make the scenes better. I always think the key is um, knowing where you're ending up. Because if you don't know your ending, yes. I don't know how anyone writes a script without knowing you know, what your conclusion is. And I think to anyone, mm. you know, I've got a load of friends and family and people that are like, oh, can you talk to my cousin who wants to be a scriptwriter? You, you end up sounding like an arsehole because you have to say no to most of them. Otherwise, I'd spend all day on the phone giving advice to people. Um, but the 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 main nugget is don't bother starting if you don't know what your ending is. If you don't know that, you know, the Millennium Falcon's going to turn up and rescue everyone, you know, so that Luke can blow up the Death Star, then don't start writing. <laughs> That's lovely. What a great quote. And so true because, you know, don't write the Millennium Falcon if it's not going to appear again later. There's no point. Well, that's it's, it. It's, yeah. you know... It's easy to get lost in stuff I'm a like massive that. Star um, Wars nerd, but, it, it, you know, script... I think script writing, yes, it's an emotional journey as characters, but it's, it's a... 
Maybe this sounds stupid. It's a bit like maths. It, it's an equation. You look at Gladiator. All right, well, you've got a guy who wants to do nothing but retire and go and live with his family to a guy who ends up dying to go and be with his family. It's sort of, you know what I mean? Mm. There's, there's a, there's mm. a very top level maths equation to most of this stuff. Because um, don't forget, all of these movies have to go into a tagline. Right. You know, they have to go onto the back of a DVD cover so that people can pick it up. Right, right. And, you know, a perfect example is your IMDb here on, on Night Hunter. You know, it's... Pretty sure it's called No Miss, but when they're marketing it, for some reason, it's called Night Hunter. But the film is called No Miss. <laughs> That's um, mental. Why have they done that? I'm, well, for those of you that haven't seen the masterpiece that is No Miss, the villain is called Simon, and he is and just, obsessed... With and his just reflection. To, so, sorry, just to jump in there, so the so the American audience don't go. He loves himself. Um, you were being ironic uh, in in any yes. way. Uh, yes, good, good, good. It, that it is, is called sarcasm. Oh, right, right. I don't Thank think you, it right. is a masterpiece. I think it should have been, and it could have been, and I'm annoyed that uh, it it is not. But I know the reasons why, and I will learn very much as a director for the next one, where I'm sure I will make mistakes, and there are mistakes that are out of my control as well. But so anyway, Simon is obsessed with his reflection in the movie, which is part of the narrative, which is why the film is called No Miss. So there is a reason why it's called No Miss, which I think is really cool. That's cool. Unfortunately, yeah. um, you know, the guys at the band called me and they said, look, because of the type of release that this film is getting, where you're not in 3,000 screens in America, we make our money from people really buying this film on demand. And if you see, according to their marketing gurus, the word no miss, even if it's Henry Cavill's face on the poster and blah, 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 they don't know what that is. So we want to call it Night Hunter. Right. To which my response was, please don't do that. (laughs) Um, Please, please don't do that. You might as well just call it Thriller. Um, Sure. So, but in the end, you know, and and I say this, genuinely with respect to the Saban team I, I don't have so much of a creative ego where I want to stop them doing the best job they are trying to do because also I don't want to screw over the financiers who are you know dependent on the film's success and, yes. at, and at no point do I really want them turning around saying well Dave we've all lost money because you couldn't handle a change of title mm-hmm. so and That's the, why yeah, I, I get, will always call yeah. my film No Miss and you saw the poster I, I sort of created for the LA Film Festival, which is my kind of way take of, uh, my yeah. take on the design and marketing of it versus where we are today, which hopefully, fingers crossed, um, does okay. Because I get tagged in everything on social media. Right. For some reason, the Russian distributors have renamed the film Game of Hannibal. <laughs> and I'm not being funny. At one point no. I thought this is a, this is this is like a joke. Someone's someone's come up with this and it's a joke. I then look it up and I'm like, "Oh shit, these Russian distributors, thank you for buying the film. I'm not going to thank you for changing the title to Game of Hannibal because they're trying to make out Simon is Hannibal Lecter, which I'm not being funny. Couldn't be further from Hannibal Lecter. And the film is nothing like Silence of the Lambs. That I get 
I'm getting abused on social media. Oh my gosh. For calling my film Game of Hannibal because people are like, well, we've just watched it and this title is complete bullshit and clearly the writer, you know, the filmmakers are treating us like we're idiots, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sort of looking at it going, wow. And actually in the poster for the Russian market, they've got some, they've got a picture of Henry clearly from sort of five or six years earlier, cleanly shaven. <laughs> so the whole thing is just, it's kind of fun. So for any Russian viewers, um, I, I apologise. That's not my fault. Um, but this is not a Hannibal Lecter sequel, prequel. This isn't... And In any Candidly, way. Silence of the Lambs is a masterpiece. Mm. And I'm not even saying from a quality perspective, this is not Silence of the Lambs. Even from a story point of view, just... Go and if you're going to yell at someone, yell at the distributor, <laughs> please, and not the filmmaker. This, like I say, it happens a lot. And it once once we sell the film or we give it over to a distributor, it is out of our hands. This is the thing as filmmakers, they can put it out on DVD, they can put it out in cinemas, they can change the title, they can shorten it, they can do what the fuck they want because they now own it. I suppose it's like someone correct buying a top off you. It's like it's mine now. I can cut it up and change it and spray paint it and whatever and. It's devastating and it's heartbreaking. I can hear that in you. Um, it is. Maybe, you know, maybe one day you can laugh. Maybe. Well, I mean, I kind of... You, is, you kind of... I kind of already am. Maybe it's slightly premature. Maybe it's just... Mm. Um, I'm... You know, this movie has been riddled with problems from the beginning. From a... From the... From the... Not from a creative point of view, but more you know, the finance and then actually making the film was extremely challenging. And in many ways, there was more drama off camera than on in a very intense thriller. So that, you know, you kind of get to the end of it and you're like, of course, they're going to change the name to Night Hunter. What else are you guys going to do? (laughs) Yeah. But then the, the, the the, the log line here on, you know, on IMDb, it has to say what the movie is in a short space of time. I um, hate log lines. So when you're and writing, I, and I'm, you I, log, they're really hard, aren't they? Really well, hard to do. Here's the thing: a log line that is very generic and simple is easy. So, for example, if I was to write the log line for No Miss, it would be, you know, police trap a serial killer and have to break into his mind to find out who his victims are. But that is not the log line on IMDb because. You know, the process of getting a film made, everyone has their two cents and comes up with these terrible treatment sentences that just cheapen your idea. Shall I read it? Shall I read what it says? You didn't write this, did you? Um, A weathered lieutenant. I would never use the word weathered for anything. A weathered lieutenant, his police force and a local vigilante are all caught up in a dangerous scheme involving a recently arrested troubled man who's linked to years of female abductions and murders. If a lion eats someone and you lock it up and you say, don't do that again, and 10 years later you let it out, what happens? Not all criminals are animals. I'm talking about the endless voice in a predator's head that says, do it, do it, do it. Sexy. Really? What's happening to me? I've disarmed you. It's still there, but it's no longer possible for you to get an erection. Jesus Christ, what have you done to me? Silence. Your savings will be divided amongst the girls you abused. The people I chase, they live in the dark. And I could see them really easily until you came along. 
He ain't coming. I'm bored. I want to go home. There's a young girl in here. She left already. We can't go knocking down doors. The very life is on the line. Right now. Right this second. And here we are, talking! He says that he's fitted a girl with a tracker, and he's using her as bait. Get out there and find her! Personality traits, each with their own realities. But I don't know if he's even aware of them. I think he's messing with us. He raped the basement! What? He killed six cops! This is not a game. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What? Another girl has gone missing. But we caught him. He's right there. He's been in my house. That's impossible. Let me say I'm sorry for the things I've done. And then I'll tell you where the last one is. Simon's got friends. When you find them, kill them. This is No Miss. This is your debut feature. You've gone from making a really, really cool short film um, as a director to directing a feature film with huge names. Let's talk about how you did that because it is an incredible achievement. Um, regardless of the, the problems that happened during the filming, which we'll come to if you want to oblige us so much with that. But, but look, the, you know, talk, talk me through the cast because people out there will be going, how the hell did he do this? <laughs> you know, Alexandra Daddario, Henry Cavill, Minka Kelly, Ben Kingsley, Nathan Fillion, Stanley Tucci, the list goes on. Come on, how do you do it? Um... Kissed a lot of frogs, maybe. I don't know. To be honest, it was, you know, um, right. I'm just, I guess I'm really stubborn. And I, 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 even to this day, I look at that and I think, I, I, I genuinely don't. I just, it sounds like I just asked. I mean, we, the first one in, Seriously? the first one in was Ben. Um, and I actually wrote, I wrote. Ben Kingsley was your first cast was member. Was my first in. cast member in. And I wrote the movie, I'm sorry, I wrote his role with him in mind, which is even more ridiculous. Um, and uh, when, we, wow. when we got him, it was like, oh, hang on a minute, this is now real. Well, sort of to, for the most part, because we still hadn't then landed our lead roles. And you always get suggested people and. Um, you know, <clears throat> Henry actually got suggested to me by an agent at the time uh, because Henry was at CAA and they were helping to package the, the film before he ended up then leaving them um, for WME. But Henry got suggested to me and, I, you know, I'm a massive Man of Steel fan and I've always liked, I, I've always thought he, this, this is a guy who's a bit like Sean Connery, which is, you know, there's such a presence there. He hasn't really had a had a had a proper opportunity back then, at least. Obviously, Mission Impossible. Then he he went on after ours, but you know he hadn't really had an opportunity to do some real acting, um, you know, because obviously Superman is such a specific thing. 
Um, I I love sure. the idea. I just thought there's no way in on God's earth he's going to want to do this. And then you know he read the script and you know we met and and got on very well. Um, and from that moment, but how did wait? So how did it get to him in the first place? Because it sounds. So you've made that sound really easy. It's not. Yeah, and, yeah, no, and trust me, this is from years really. of casting, uh, you know, and this is a this yeah. is a filmmaker podcast, right? So p- people will understand this. When yes. you make an offer to an actor, for the most part, I then sit there twiddling my thumbs because the one frustrating thing about doing this is you can't go make multiple offers. Now, I'm sure, uh, you know, touch wood on future projects, now that I've done something, it changes because I'm a real director. Whereas when you're a first timer, yes, people say, "Oh, Dave's," you know, he's got some, he's got some chops on him from a writing point of view. But as a director, you're you're untested, and candidly, your entrance to the market is ridiculous because, for the most part, you spend your time thinking, "Is anyone going to call me out on the fact that I might not have any idea how to direct a movie?" And no one does. <laughs> um, but you, you, um, you know, from landing Henry, it just it suddenly snowballed and became a lot more real. But you know, there's been plenty of times, honestly, where I've made offers to actors, and it's happened. Actually, I won't mention him because his agent is very powerful. But on a on a on another movie, I'd made an offer to an actor who I've always loved, another British actor, actually, um, and. For three months on this movie, we were strung along by his agent. No, no, he loves it. He's, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. It's a great script. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. So then I would write him a letter and, you know, you send that off and you print it. You know, you, you go and get your nice fountain mm-hmm. pen. And I'm not being funny, but it's been a long time since I've handwritten anything. So 50 drafts. Oh, man, you make a mistake. 50 yeah, drafts 50 later, drafts. you're like, Jesus, I should just send an email which says, can, you, can totally. we have a coffee, please? Can, <laughs> um, totally. Dear Brian Dear Blessed. so-and-so, <laughs> can we please have a cup of coffee so I can convince you that this is going to be a good, yeah. a good play? How amazing yes. you are and why you're yes. going to do the and work. how yes. I will bring the yes. best performance of your life. Anyway, so... I anyway so you you literally twiddle your thumbs and it's that is the most crippling thing in the world because you're endlessly looking at your phone thinking is today the day we'll either get a phone call saying yep he's read it and he wants to have a conversation or no he's read it and he doesn't want to do it so anyway cut to th- and during yeah. this yeah, I've got, I've got, yeah well during this time have you got you must have the money in place or is it pay or play offers because these are big names so Agents don't necessarily take you seriously. Is that because you had the big producers behind you? Um, on was on it- that movie, and actually on on no, it, pay or play is such a, and this is sort of the you know when I talk about you you take your wins and but also your hits and you kind of have to just mesh it all into it's just plasticine. It doesn't really mean anything because the reason why is these big actors. You know, you think of the. Jeremy Renner, for example, you know, in the independent space, he'll get a number of studio offers, which is on his agent's desk. Then he'll get a bunch of independently financed backed offers, which are on his desk. And then he'll get a thousand non-pay-or-play indie offers. And for the most part, you're in that thousand non-pay-or-play indie offers. And so, and by the way, the actor that we went to wasn't Jeremy Renner. Just as an example to explain to people... Just as an example. making these offers. (laughs) The thought that Jeremy Renner, after six weeks of sitting on an offer to him, 
has read the thousand indie offers that aren't backed mm-hmm. with money is very, very small. And so you've got to very. figure out a way somehow of getting, you know, making sure the agent is actually giving it to them. And, I, and I've heard that and legally how, how agents have to... I don't know whether that's true. I think a lot of that comes down to whoever the producer is. Because I can, you know, I can tell everyone mm-hmm. how wonderful I am, but no one really cares or will listen. But if a producer is then... Which is why, actually, the, the, one of the major roles on any movie is your, who is your lead producer from a packaging point of view with talent. And on Nomis, we had a guy called Rob Barnum, who when it comes to packaging talent, is is phenomenal because he he was the first producer I'd really met and I'd come across a lot with these amazing credits. But actually the agents were reading a script when he was saying, no, no, you, you pay attention to it. Um, mm. And that's that's okay. why, you know, the, the agents at CAA, UTA in particular had responded to the script because he'd given it to them for whatever reason and they they were then taking the time to read it and... And responding to so the they take it seriously. So basically, by having a strong, uh, well-experienced producer on board, means that when it gets sent, the script gets sent, it gets sent with a seal of approval from this producer to say, "Look, this is quite likely to go ahead." So therefore, your client should take this very seriously. I right. think a, a version of that, yes. I think because it comes from yes. him, they're like, "All right, we'll read it." Um, and how, how did you get them involved in the first place? And I know it, it sounds like it, it's quite wonderful. You sort of, you're in that Hollywood world and you're meeting people and uh, you're kind of going to the right place. Well, actually, he, but still, he came in because... So there's a sales company people. called Fortitude that he is no longer with. But mm-hmm. around the time, once we'd landed um, Sir Ben... You know, the sales companies in the market then get wind of your script and the fact that you're casting up. And, and a few of them had known who I was because I'd almost... I'd had a few almost get made movies. Um, right, okay. And the response, as I said, was always, you know, well, can't you give us more of a genre thriller, Dave, as your first one? Because that's something we think mm-hmm. can get made. So Fortitude, which was the company Rob was working for, you know, he, he came in and kind of made the casting process a lot more real. Um and, you know, helped me get in front of agents and whatnot. And then I think, I think to be honest, the confidence in the, in the agents looking at the script then becomes tenfold as soon as you're in front of an actor and they respond to meeting you, which fortunately happened, you know, with everyone that I've managed to get in front of on the movie. So then it, I think it yeah. then kind of, you know, if, if my first meeting with Henry Cavill had been a disaster, I, you know, we wouldn't have the film wouldn't have happened because not just because he wouldn't have starred in it and I'd have cast someone else. But I think when, when the agencies, which are really the, the blockade runners to these stars, when they think that there's a credibility around putting you in a room with a movie star, that life becomes a lot easier as long as you don't fuck it up. Um, and, you know, having mm. written the script, he and I got on very well. I got on very well with um, Sir Ben as well. And so from that moment on, I think it gave him confidence to say, all right, well, let's put Dave in a room with Alex Daddario or, or, or you know, Stanley Tucci, et cetera, et cetera. Um, wow. And how was your process? Then? Were you, I mean, were you nervous before you meeting them? Were you, is this um, kind of water off a duck's back for I you? I was nervous in different ways. You know, I was, I... The I was I was excited to meet Henry because I'm a massive Superman nerd. <laughs> so, 
you know, half of me is, and, and it's, and I, and, I, and I don't think I'll ever lose this, but half of me is meeting him as a fan because you can't help be a fan, you know, but you also have to be professional and realise that you're there to do a job. Um, I think it was Sir Ben that I was genuinely shitting myself because he's such a legend, you know, and such a formidable mm. man. Um, and we've heard stories about him. Um, yeah, so the fact well, that... Well, and, I, know, and I'll say this, whatever the stories are, I, I, can, I can tell you what it's like to work with Sir Ben. So the first time I met him, I was genuinely shitting myself. But he's so professional and so... Um, initially, you know, he's also sussing you out. And now I'm, I'm close with Sir Ben and we have, we're working on some other stuff. So I, I, he is genuinely a lovely, lovely human being who just likes making great stuff. That's what he wants to do. And he still has that fire in him even now. And you listen, you know, you, you, he's more than willing to share stories about, you know, his life experiences and, and, you know, the, the, the challenges that he's faced and the lessons that he's learned. He's such a generous collaborator. But I was, I was cacking myself when I first met him because, you know, you've, by that point you've spoken on the phone and whatnot. But when you're physically opposite someone who's that legendary, you can't help kind of get a bit shy. But to be honest, he's aware of who he is. And so he makes it a lot easier for you to just be yourself. And then... You know, after 30 seconds in the back of your mind of shitting yourself, you then just sort of fit into a mode where the two of you are, it sounds silly, but equals. You know, you're just two filmmakers talking about how do we make this as good as possible and how do we help each other achieve what we're both trying to achieve here. Um, And I learned a lot from Sir Ben, I really did. In fact, the talking about shitting myself, the only time I ever got nervous on set was the first morning of the shoot where there's a scene in a hospital where, um, you know, Sir Ben's character charges in and and he's really wound up. And the way that we were shooting it was, you know, there was a long hospital corridor and so the monitors were sort of miles away and I couldn't sort of be around the actors because we had these long sort of shots pointing down the corridor. So, Ooh, yeah, yeah. So Ben did a couple of takes, you know, and, and he does his stuff and he always gives you something different. But whatever he gives you is brilliant. Very similar, I have to say, to Brendan Fletcher, he, who is at that level, truly. But so anyway, mm. you know, I, I had a, uh, I wanted to give Sir Ben a note because I wanted to make sure in the edit I had one version that was, that was a little bit, uh, where the where the emotional chords were a little bit more vulnerable. Now, how you give Ben Kingsley that note is even to this day saying it out loud. <laughs> I I wouldn't know how to do it. But I ran down the corridor and I and I remember getting more and more nervous because he was looking at me, thinking, "Okay, Dave's going to give me a note." So he stood in the corridor, and as I'm running past the crew and whatnot, I genuinely got stage fright reached him, oh, put my hand in the air as if to say something and couldn't get my words out for about five seconds, but it felt like an hour. And I genuinely thought, if you don't fucking say something, this is going to go really badly because now everyone's staring at you. And I don't, I don't yeah. know where the idea of this note came from, but I think mm. I said, um, so Ben, the, the song that's playing on the radio is the same song 
you were listening to in your car when you found out your wife was dead. And he looked at... Oh, wow. After I, to this day, I don't know how I came up with it because I didn't, what I didn't want to say to Sir Ben was, can you give me an option that's slightly more, rah, you know? Um, and he, he literally, he didn't say anything. He nodded. And I ran back to the monitors thinking, where the fuck did that come from? And <laughs> the next take he gave me was sublime and I just I leant around the corner of the corridor that was 30 feet away literally gave him a thumbs thumbs up he gave me a thumbs up and I was like oh wow that's how you direct (laughs) (laughs) that is I love that story it was I've been in those situations where you you're behind the monitor going I've got a note it's brilliant and then you run up to the actor and you sort of go Oh fuck! Fuck! What was it? Oh fuck! I've forgotten what it was. Yeah. And the fact you came, you, that came out is it's genius and it's great. What a great note! It was it was it, it was entirely unplanned, but I think you know working with my actors, I genuinely loved it. But I I I developed a shorthand with all of them individually because not not all of them respond the same way to certain notes and you know there was a there was a reason behind some of them. So with Brendan, who I'd rehearsed with a lot. And there's a, I can't really go into why because I don't want to spoil it for people. But he's playing a very complicated sure. role, slash roles. Um, and so I had to, you know, he and I would very privately rehearse. And my my collaboration with him, I don't think I'll ever have with another actor ever again because it was, it was amazing. And he and I developed a shorthand where I could give him a note just by looking at him. Because, oh, or wow. just sniffing the air, or just doing something, and he and I, you know, you know, we got on very, very well. But also, I didn't want people to hear what the notes I was giving him because I wanted them to be reacting mm-hmm. to this line in a cage, who at any point might yeah. flip. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. I love. I love working with actors anyway. I love the collaboration. I love what performances you can shape and tweak and sometimes you don't have to do anything sometimes you need to do quite a bit but i i love that i think it's really important that you can work with actors and the fact that your very first day on your very first feature film was with sir ben kingsley (laughs) and you ran up and gave him one of the best notes he might have had (laughs) ever but i love the fact that you paused before it genuinely felt like an hour because you just I was, I love I was it. just cheating myself but it was the only time you, you, giving Henry a note was easier yeah. you know because by then you know maybe it's his age but we he, Henry and I had bonded very quickly and much mm. earlier and so you know he, the way I would give him a note was often very different um, a lot and to be honest a lot of Henry's notes were just you know were more about his body language you know I really wanted to, to keep him almost performing from the bottom of his throat because he's playing someone that never speaks his mind. So a lot of a lot yes. of the notes with Henry were things like, you know, bury it, bury it, bury it, bury it. Um which you could you could give him that note just by not being funny. I you you just barrel your shoulders over a bit and bury your chin in your neck. And that would be my note to him, which he he then knew what that meant. But there was I, I guess I just I found my groove with each of these actors on an individual basis. Um, nat- naturally, it wasn't like it was I planned or 
maybe it was wrong, but it worked at the time. So, <laughs> which is well, it's impressive anyway. So, so you've you now you're on set. Things are moving forward. How are you working with your team? How are you planning your shots? Had you done extensive work beforehand? Were you quite free on the day? Because there's a lot of people out there going, okay, debut film, clearly there was a budget, clearly has big, big names. What's your process leading up to it and on set working with, you know, a very experienced team as well? So here's the reality. Yes, I had a process, but I didn't get to... Uh, use it <laughs> because what <laughs> happened was you know I didn't get to prep the movie because all of the financing endlessly fell apart which is the first thing so I think I actually got six days of pre-production on my first movie <laughs> which is ridiculous six wait six days six days of actual pre-production um, what, so what happened before that you had, didn't have the money in place or well no the, the talk us through that so, that's fascinating um, the money you know, I was helping to raise some of the equity for the film. And then, you know, okay. when it became evident that other monies were not becoming apparent, the bank loan would disappear, the mayors wouldn't show up. You know, you're then constantly trying to keep the film from falling over. And I sort of realised that if if I let this film fall apart with the cast that I'd landed... I didn't think I'd mm-hmm. ever recover professionally ever because I would have had the most phenomenal cast that you'd see in most tent poles on a tiny indie movie. And actually that's also a curse because everyone looks at the film and is like, well, clearly you had shitloads of money for a cast like that. And the reality is, you know, we didn't. My below the line was non-existent. Um, but the, wow. the I'd storyboarded and talked, you know, with the DP who only actually... Um, you know, my first DP on the movie was a guy called Frankie DeMarco, who was a brilliant DP who'd wow. worked, yeah, who'd yeah. worked with Rob Barnum and All Is Lost and um, another one of his movies, I think Margin Call it was. Very experienced yeah, call, uh, sure. DP. Anyway, so when, you know, when Frankie realised what a shit show pre-production was and the likelihood of the film falling apart was increasingly high... You know, he sort of took me aside and he's a lovely man. And he, and he just sort of said, look, I've, I, I have another gig in the works where I can go and work in New York, which is where I live for the next six months on a series and I get to feed my family. Or I can stay with you, Dave, in Winnipeg. But this is turning into World War Three, and it's it's becoming more obvious that the, this film is probably going to fall apart, to which I reluctantly said to him go and take the job in New York because what I didn't want to do was say no stay and then the film fall apart and I've you know mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah you. it's on me yeah, and you know when cool. he when he put it in a way that was like you know I have to earn money to feed my kids I don't want to I didn't want to mess with that so Michael Barrett who was yeah. the DP who then came in he came in I think who did Kiss Kings, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Ted yeah, I mean, very yeah, very good DP, DP but he, you know he'd also you know, he's a DP who's done a lot of big movies. Um, he came in, I think, two weeks before we started shooting. So there wasn't a lot of time of here's how we want to do stuff, you know. And and ha- also the other factor is there's a, a, a local production company called Buffalo Gal in Winnipeg who had never done a movie mm-hmm. of this size oh. at all. <laughs> And oh wow, you know, and I don't mind saying 
uh, were very, it was very, very, very challenging because they were extremely stretched with, for the most part, people that hadn't done the job that they were doing. For example, our location scout was also casting a Chucky movie at the time. <laughs> and so oh my gosh. there was a lot of that type of stuff, which mm-hmm. was... In, Just not conducive to making a feature film no, on your debut not, when you're raising not money. Not in any way. And it, yeah, and it, panicking. You know, and it became increasingly a disaster because what happens then is I know how I want to shoot my movie and I knew the performances that I wanted to get from my actors. And that I, 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 I proudly, you know, as egotistical as it sounds, I think I got that. Where the film fell apart was from a logistical point of view, we were so handicapped from day one that there's so much of my script that I didn't get to shoot that there's probably 25% of it that is is not in the film or not even in the cutting room floor because the first three weeks of the production was such a shit show (laughs) that... I, you know, and, and candidly, in your first two or three weeks is when you've got your stars there, you know. So you have to, mm. and, and candidly, that, that was a, a very ambitious script with the shooting days, with the budget that we'd, I'd then been able to raise during, instead of really prepping my movie, putting the financing together to stop it from falling apart. We never had enough money to start with, really, but we should we we should have achieved you know shooting full scenes and and everything that we'd needed if the production was on its right sort of foundations from day one unfortunately it wasn't because in the first 3 weeks when you got your stars there i lost realistically 25 to 30% of every single day because equipment wasn't showing up the locations hadn't been booked the vans were in the wrong places you know, and there's there's an element of excitement as a director on your first few days. But when you're sort of looking mm-hmm. at your watch and you're like, well, hang on, I've been here since seven in the morning. It's now 11 and we haven't shot anything. What, oh, no. what the fuck's oh, going no. on? And, mm. you know, um, and I say this as a compliment to Rob. You know, Rob is a great producer when it comes to casting a movie, but he's not a physical producer. That's not, and, and he's open about it. That's not his skill set. You know, yeah, not bringing in the sandwiches. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but sure. there were people on our team who were meant to have that skill set who never showed up. <laughs> and then when you add that into Buffalo Gal, who weren't capable of wow. handling this type of movie and were very stretched anyway, because what they were doing mm. were were doubling up on productions, which is unforgivable. Um, Mm-hmm. you suddenly realise that your day's gone and su- your shooting schedule, you know, when you've only got Sir Ben for a limited amount of days and Stanley Tucci for a very limited amount of days, and even, candidly, Henry, you know, when you lose those actors and you haven't shot 30% of their scenes in the script, oh my God. you're then endlessly playing catch-up and the Bond company stepped in um, and it was my first experience wow. of a Bond company. Fortunately, you know, everyone had always told me these horror stories about Bond company. Oh, they're going to fire the director. Well, the great thing was they turned up and they said, well, it's weird because the first time director seems to know what he's doing. So does the DP, <laughs> even though the DP is very slow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where's the produ- Where's the 
where's the oversight? Where's the producers on set who are managing this shit show of why things aren't on time? Where's the kit that is meant to be on this call sheet? Yeah, except, you know, and, and so they stepped in and I don't want to speak too candidly about that experience, but it, it, it became evident that we weren't, we weren't in the right place to handle the production when we should have been. Um, which is why this is a, creatively, I the, know yeah. where my film has fallen over. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm, I'm extremely proud of the film, especially because of the performances of my amazing cast. And I think all of them shine, you, be. you know, yeah. in roles that they're mm-hmm. not used to playing, especially people like Henry. And I know he then went and did Fallout and he was great in that. But, I, I, you know, I, I think the performance that I got from him in Nomis is brilliant because it's something he'd never done before. And he's a great, he's a great actor when you give him space. And also Alex and Brendan. Yes. And, I mean, so Ben's always amazing. But I, I, I'm very proud of those performances. Where my film falls over, and for that reason, is not in 3,000 screens, is because the glue isn't there because I never actually managed to shoot what I needed to shoot. And there's stuff in the script that isn't on screen, which makes the film confusing. And when you're shooting a a very complex psychological thriller, when you start removing scenes, every one of those scenes has a, a layer of information that you need to tell your audience in a way. <laughs> when you remove those bits of information, <laughs> the film can be quite confusing, which is, I think, you know where I'm leveled criticism as a writer director um there are there are parts of the film that are confusing but that's because there are elemental details that aren't there shoot correct things, correct yeah. and so you know so, when I talk about doubling in the movie we we did we when we'd lost most of our actors we actually had the hottest weekend in Winnipeg history <laughs> um in uh-huh. March I think it was so we would we were on night shoots and obviously way behind anyway. But then you know, uh, looking around and seeing green everywhere instead of white, the weekend we're meant to do a load of driving scenes. Which candidly, thank God it happened because there's no way we we were able to shoot any of the driving scenes anyway because we didn't have the rigs and some idiot had sold the cars that we were meant to be using for the driving scenes anyway. <laughs> that oh were gosh. in the movie. Oh my god. Um, we we ended up saying all right well let's let's stop production because now it's a mm. question of body doubles etc and come back when the snow's returned which is what we did but that's why the movie was shot what feels like 10 years ago because we had to wait a year for sir ben to be available again because there's a crucial mm-hmm. scene you know there's a load of scenes with henry and alex that i needed but the film could get by without them and there was never an option of bringing henry back because he was on fallout so, yeah. um, but there was one crucial scene with Sir Ben and Brendan, which actually is the reveal, one of the narrative reveals in the film that I didn't have coverage of because, um, you know, we'd, Just didn't we have didn't time. have time, yeah. but also the day that we were meant to shoot it, we were flipping a car and I'm not being funny, but the rig didn't work to flip the car. The car froze, so the car didn't actually work. And so then you're surrounded by people that are like, well, do you really need to flip the car? Can't you just have it hit a pillar? <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, um, wow. It's, it's fascinating. And do you know what? It's a testament to you that you've, you have got a film that is 
watchable. <laughs> it is good. I really enjoyed oh, it. And the performances you. are fantastic. I really did. And the fact, you know, can tell you're a great director. Thank you. And I think what's really interesting is that when you're directing something, generally, it's really hard to concentrate on your project and on your script and on your actors and on the overall arc. When you've got to deal with when are the sandwiches arriving? When is my kit arriving? When is that going to get there? Can we even get in this location? It stops you being creative and your mind goes out of what you need no, to do. No, absolutely. Um, and also protect, trying your best to protect your actors from them discovering oh gosh, yeah. what a shit yeah. show it is. <laughs> because eventually, <laughs> and, and, I, and I say this you know, with love, Stanley and Ben immediately knew what was going on because they've got such experience. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, I remember... They look around. They look around. And even I remember, I think it was Stanley, who kept saying to me, this is not how it works, darling. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, <laughs> is it? Isn't it? Well, it's my first one. So I've got nothing to compare it to. But, you know, so I just kept, you know, you, you have no choice but to put a smile on your face and try and pick everyone up. So... But I think eventually Henry, you know, they they were more aware of the fact that they were in their trailers much longer than they should have been. And so, you, mm. you, you know, my job is protecting them so they can focus on performance. But eventually I think, you know, they cottoned on that, you know, there are issues here that shouldn't be issues because, you know, when you've got your actor for three days left in their shooting schedule and they spend 80% of the time in their trailer rather than filming <laughs> it's very hard mm-hmm. to be like no 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 don't worry we're still lighting when you know full well yeah. that it's not that you're still lighting it's because the lights are so there's there. no lights there <laughs> or actually <laughs> and this this is god's honest truth there was a moment where one of the rig lighting guys the dp had had asked for certain lights and so the a scene was lit with lights but there weren't bulbs in the lights I swear on my life, this is the truth. I I honestly thought Jeremy Beadle was going to pop out and be like, ha ha, got you. Because I remember... (laughs) Or Ashton Kutcher. Or Ashton Kutcher, yeah. So I remember being on set and Michael Barrett went, what? And one of the guys said, well, there's no, we don't have the bulbs for these lights. And he said, well, why did you put the lights up? And the guy went, because you asked us to. And and we sort of looked at each other like... Oh my god, this is killing me. Mm. Um, so anyway, it was. Did you? It just, it just, mate. I feel for you, but the fact I think it, I probably helped you that it was your first one because you didn't know any different, and because you went, oh, maybe it's always like this. Though you probably knew it wasn't, and everyone said it isn't. You didn't know, and oh yeah, man, I, it's just you, really heartbreaking. You must have had days where you thought, "What am I doing this? Shall I just?" Do you know what now. the weird thing is? Not once did I think of quitting. <laughs> and and really? I know that sounds ridiculous, but there were there were numerous matter. times when the, the people involved in the film wanted to quit and candidly have since quit. <laughs> but for me, I felt so <laughs> lucky and so determined. No, no, this is... I'm going to get this film made because it's not only is it a phenomenal opportunity to tell this story with these phenomenal people, but it has such an effect on who I want to be as a filmmaker and the opportunities for me as a filmmaker going forward. This will not, I won't let it fall over. And, you know, I I now know, and it's, 
you know what, I've always heard directors bitch and moan about how hard it is. And I'm not being funny. I've been the first one whenever I hear those podcasts or interviews that's like, dude, suck it up. You had $100 million and you're fucking crying that your movie was hard. I would die, yeah. if, I yeah, would yeah, die yeah, to sure. be in that position. Whereas now, I hear myself say the same thing. And even though it wasn't $100 million, but I'm like, oh my God, it was so hard directing my movie. And I can hear myself in the yeah. back of my mind is Dave five years ago going shut up, you whiny bitch. You've just directed your first movie. You're so lucky. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And there will be people listening out there who will go, all right, that sounds really hard. But still, you had a great cast and you're in a, a fortunate position. But you, when you're in these positions, and it happened to me uh, many times in my filmmaking journey, where you just go, but this didn't need to happen. This didn't... I've worked so hard to get here and again whiny oh poor me I've worked so hard of course everyone works really hard at what they do but you finally got to that position of being on set making a film which is your dream and what you want to do and then other people let you down correct yeah and yeah. and look there's there's, there's some hard. errors that are my mistakes in the film you know narratively course, yeah. but that's always going to happen but what I think is unforgivable and we talk about IMDB but there are people involved mm. in the movie which is why there are 500 exec producers because they are all people that help me finance the film when none of some money of one of the companies involved arrived. And so that is credit to my exec producers, even though there's 500 of them. But there's 500 of them because it was either that or I don't get to make the movie and it all falls apart. And But there is there are people involved who never showed up and ran for the hills when it got challenging and you look at their imdbs and you listen to them talk about what big producers or blah 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 they are and you're like you're full of shit <laughs> um yeah you're full but of shit that's, you didn't you get know, that's on the ground with me and part of the journey is finding that, good people and sticking clinging to them you know in your future stuff which i hopefully intend to do <laughs> yeah well this is it what i mean now you've you've been through this experience which on one hand sounds amazing the other hand sounds an absolute fucking nightmare and yet you sound so positive and you, you sound like yeah okay that happened it was tough get over yourself i'm going to carry on making movies this is not going to stop me and it's a great attitude to have so i just want to confirm that's what you're doing next next you're pushing on with your next movie the one you're actually trying to make beforehand yeah. it's a weird thing to to describe but when you've spent your whole life thinking i want to be a film director because i think that's my calling in life and then you get to do it and it turns out to be true. As cheesy as it sounds, not from a, oh, I'm a great film director, but just because it's like thinking I'm going to be really good at riding a bike and then you do it and you're like, oh, thank God I didn't fall off. I knew that was what I was meant to do in my life. It just <laughs> calms you down. Yeah. It just makes you sleep easier, I guess. And so, you know, there's a lot I've learned from No Miss from a craft point of view in particular and and story point of view and that's affected the way I write and but more than anything it's just reaffirmed that it, it whether it's this or or f- for anyone who wants to be a writer or a production designer when you get to do what you love it doesn't really matter how hard it is you just still love it because you know and that's driving me forward you know god willing to make my next stuff and and actually my next stuff is much more aligned to what i want to 
the stories that I want to tell, uh, you know, now hopefully I, not that I get to choose, but I'm being more uh, uh, particular about what I want to direct next. Like I've been offered a lot of crap genre thrillers <laughs> because people saw the trailer for Nomus and was like, oh, this is good. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm now trying to make something that's much more, okay, this is who I want to be as a filmmaker rather than, okay, this is a step to show I can be one. I see. So you've been very strategic about it in a way. I am. Because you could easily have said yes to those films. I, I mean, I almost, you know, there were parts of me that were like, oh, that would be cool because so-and-so's doing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, my ne- the next feature I'm hoping I get to direct, it's called Webbles with a W. I can't say who's involved, but it's pretty awesome. Uh, okay. But it's sort of a, it's a Goonies ET kind of uh, live action Star Warsy kids movie, um, which is much more aligned to the stuff I grew up watching and have always loved. You know, very much that sort of Donner Spielberg era. Um, mm, whether I get to yeah, make it I'm or not, same, you know, right. who knows? But I'm I'm charging. I'm all full steam ahead on that, and then also a, a TV series um, that is uh, uh, about the UN, and they're involved. So we're doing a sort of a true stories of UN staff in the field that I'm working with someone on who's just amazing. Um, But again, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, you can list them all on IMDb and yes, it will sound good. And I'm sure, you know, Mm -hmm. girls in a bar would look you up and be like, oh, that's great. He's doing all this cool stuff. But the reality is when you've been here long enough, you're like, none of it means anything until it's actually getting made. (laughs) So true. Or even actually finished made and out there because yeah, even when it's being made doesn't mean it's, getting out there um well um, i wish you massive luck with thank that you. uh thank you so much for telling your story just incredible our listeners will love that. oh brilliant well good luck Absolutely with your one it. it sounds um i can't believe you're doing this instead of um prepping your movie that you start in a couple of weeks but i wish you all the best with it if you ever run into <laughs> any problems yeah. just remember just listen back it to could this be one. a lot worse and the Bond company can be telling you that you can't afford to buy your crew coffees. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my god. I don't think there'll be I don't think there'll be a coffees on this one anyway. You can't right. <laughs> probably can't afford it. Well when them. you're in minus thirty um, degree weather, coffees and donuts oh, and you know, anything that keeps tries to keep a smile on people's faces is is invaluable. So um hundred yeah. percent. So I'll make it myself if not. Yeah, else. quite right. Um so where 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 can people follow you and follow your journey? Twitter's always a good place for my listeners. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I, I, I mean, I, I'm paying the penalty of having an Instagram name that was my nickname in school, which was Stingray. Can I guess? <laughs> Stingray. Yeah. Ah, brilliant. Fucking yeah, stupid. Yeah, um, I've always thought, oh, I'll change it to my real name, and then I've never done it. So I'm at Stingray, which is ridiculous, uh, which is Sting. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's not quite game of... Hannibal or Night Hunter, but so I'm at Stingray, um, which is R A Y E D uh, on Twitter and Instagram. So I tend to put certain bits up there or clues to what I'm doing or just stupid nerdy Star Wars stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Um, people pay a lot of money for that. 
uh, Twitter handle, by the way. Yeah, it might be worth selling and getting your, your, your name. But anyway, right. that's just by the by. People, yeah, if you started off with a really good one from the beginning, because now you'd only be able to get Stingray 304 or something. Right, so. right. I can't imagine there are many You're more Stingrays. I've never actually looked it up, but... Uh. I bet there are. I bet there are. Anyway, especially on Instagram. Right. Um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, really appreciate your time. Um, so have you got a website people can go to? Or where is um, where's the film? Is there a website for the film or anywhere not, where people can go see where it's playing or get a copy? Candidly, I'm not sure. I think I know Signature's releasing it in the UK. So we're out in some cinemas and then SVOD. Uh, I think next end of next week. And as of tomorrow, we're out in the US and Canada in some theatres and SVOD. So I would just Google it and um, by all means, <laughs> please uh, please go and watch the movie. And if you've got nice things to say, by all means, tag me. <laughs> if you don't, then just keep it to yourself. <laughs> there you go. That's a lesson always. I've said this quite a lot on the podcast, certainly not for a while, but I agree. If you've got something nice to say, say it. If you haven't, shut up. Well, that's just it. It's, it's hard it's enough. All, it's it hard is. enough, shut but... The movie seems to be uh, like Marmite at the moment. I either get these wonderfully, really nice messages on Instagram and, you know, and, and Twitter and people are being so, so kind and it just, it makes you feel great. But mm. I've also seen a couple that are like, hmm, we hope this director dies and we're going to put his name up. Oh there was one in Portugal, I think it was, that kind of made me chuckle, but it was something like... Um, you know, seen the movie, we're going to put this director's name up in cinemas so that he never tricks us again. Or maybe that was in Russia. <laughs> I think that was in Russia. But So anyway, but fortunately... The, Game of Hannibal yeah, whoever fans. tagged yeah. me in it also spelt my name wrong and got my surname well, wrong, which I didn't bother correcting them, of course. But uh, So I get, course, you know, I, you? I, get, I get both. Plus, I also, just for, for some comedic value, I get inundated with... Uh, money offers for introductions to Henry Cavill or to Alex Daddario, um, which I which I do accept. So by all means, um, oh good, good, yeah. Pen, contact him for introductions correct, pen, to Henry. PayPal or, or uh, you know uh, Bitcoin for uh, Henry Cavill will come <laughs> and clean your bathroom in a in a wardrobe in a bathrobe, uh, but it's very expensive. Wow. Well, how much is that? Oh, that's expensive, is it? Yeah, you can make a movie with that one, probably. <laughs> probably. Um, yeah. I love it. Um, Signature uh, distributing my Arthur and Merlin movie as well. Ah, congrats. Really Excellent. So, there you go. Yeah. Um, perfect. Well, you can follow us at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter or me at Giles Alderson. Uh, and we have to say, listen, if you did like this, do go to David's Twitter and his Insta and say, loved you talking about this uh, and follow him and give him some love because he deserves it. As we all do and as you do, our lovely listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, um, being prepared is everything. You can go out there and make your film, but know who your audience is and get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send the elevator back down david raymond thank you very much i love this thank you very much and best of luck with your one thank you take care everyone we will see you next tuesday as always it might be my last one before i go off and shoot arthur and merlin until then take care bye-bye all the best go make your film do it do it do it